Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. Uh, Today's guest is Sarah Bolyu. She's a speaker and a consultant who trains workers and advises leaders on skills-based sexual harassment prevention and response. She's been featured uh, in such media outlets as Fox News, Harvard Business Review, Associated Press, uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Ask Men, and a few others. Uh, on top of that, she is also the author of an excellent book, Breaking the Silence Habit, A Practical Guide to Uncomfortable Conversations in the Me Too Workplace. Sarah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Well, now, before we get uh, too far into this, I do want to put out a little bit of a, uh, a trigger warning uh, for, for folks. We're going to touch on some issues of uh, sexual harassment uh, I don't think we're going to get too far in the weeds on that, but with victims uh, and survivors of sexual harassment or assault, you really never know what is going to be a trigger. So just want to give a heads up on that right now. Um, with that being said, let me start you off where I start off all of my guests. What does the phrase burden of command mean to you? Mm, great. I love that question. So as I was reflecting on this kind of in preparation for our conversation today, what I was thinking about is this idea that that with leadership comes responsibility and that the responsibility that we have is both a privilege and a burden. And when it comes to creating healthy, safe and respectful workplaces, each individual in that workplace has command over culture. And as a part of that burden is the willingness to really be able to and willing to make ourselves uncomfortable for the benefit of the, the culture writ large. And I love that. And you keep using a word that, that I love, uncomfortable. You know, mm-hmm. we had a saying in the Marines, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I like where your book starts you know, right at the beginning, start here, why we need more uncomfortable conversations at work. So why do we need more uncomfortable conversations at work? So... The reason that we need more uncomfortable conversations at work is because of the workplace that we all want to live, that we all want to live and experience work in. So if we're thinking about a workplace that is gender diverse, a workplace that is where we can have healthy relationships with each other, where we can have healthy boundaries with each other, um, where we can communicate clearly, is like that, that's a workplace where we are going to need to have conversations about things that we might not be used to talking about. So we might not be used 
used to talking about boundaries from a bunch of different perspectives or experiences of power from different perspectives. And so in order to really kind of get to that place that I think is the place that we'd all like to be, which is a place where we feel safe and comfortable, all of us, um, we're going to need to engage in some different kinds of conversations and really to allow ourselves to be a, a little bit uncomfortable on a regular basis so that we don't, so we don't have the most vulnerable people in our workplaces experience the most discomfort. Now, I know you have some t- statistics here on this, but is is it that uh, that lack of, I won't say willingness, but let's say ability to have uncomfortable conversations that leads to such a high underreporting rate uh, for sexual harassment? Well, yeah, I mean, so I think there's a couple of pieces of context around sexual harassment that are important to understand. So one one is what we know about about the rate of, of sexual harassment. So anywhere between kind of 25 to 8, depend, depending on the workplace, the industry, the sector, the rates range from 25 to 85 percent of, of oh. people experience sexual harassment. Um, and so I think it's, you know, if you're th- if you're thinking about the topic of sexual harassment and you're thinking to yourself, well, yes, I understand it happens, but it doesn't happen here. It's that's just not true. <laughs> so right. so it's, you, know, you have to understand that it does happen. And two, you have to understand that's up to 75 percent of incidents of sexual harassment are not reported. And one of the you know, there's many reasons why sexual harassment's not reported kind of among them are fear fear of of retaliation so that and that's that is a fear it's also a legitimate fear so fearing that you might lose your job fearing the fearing personal retaliation professional retaliation not having the the social or emotional support to really to move forward with what is a a particularly painful and invasive process of doing an investigation Um, so there's lots of reasons why people don't report i think the other piece of context around around sexual harassment that's important to understand is that you know with increased conversations about sexual harassment in the wake of the Me Too movement, what that's led to is it's actually led, led to people feeling less likely and less comfortable interacting across gender uh, up to 50% of both men and women were reporting in a recent Pew Center, Center study from 2018 saying like, well, I just don't, like, I, I'm not feeling comfortable interacting. And that's not, like, that's not what we want. And so part of the challenge is, is like, if we're not talking about what our interactions look like, if we're not talking about the the many types of, of silences that impact um, impact a, a perpetrator's ability to get away with sexual harassment, then we're not going to really be able to change the culture for the better. Well, and I like that you touched on that because in the you know in the '90s, uh, late '90s, early 2000s, when I was in the Marines, we got a lot of uh, a lot of training on sexual harassment, sexual assault, rape prevention, things like that. And I remember back then, uh, one of the pieces of guidance they gave was, uh, you know, if you have to have a counseling session with a member of the opposite sex, and they were very uh, they were very intentional about wording it that way because you know in the military you do have a lot of females in leadership roles which is a little bit unlike the the private sector and if you and i remember this very clearly the guidance was if you have to have a counseling session with a member of the opposite sex and you don't either a have somebody else present or b you know have the door open you're setting yourself up for uh you know for for failure for potential to catch a complaint and and I, I have read some of those things that you were talking about here with the Me Too movement, and I remember back then thinking, you know, if you're doing the right things as a leader, your character and all that stuff should be able to help you overcome any complaints. 
But how do we get managers and leaders kind of past that idea that just because somebody is a member of the opposite sex, they're at risk of catching a complaint of sexual harassment? Right. Well, I mean, I think I, to me, it, it, it's it's like that's an interesting solution to the wrong problem, right? So it's mm-hmm. like so if the problem that you're trying to solve is is as you kind of described it, not to catch a complaint about sexual harassment, then that certainly is a strategy to solve that problem. If the if the problem that you're trying to solve is creating a gender diverse workplace where everybody feels safe and respected. <laughs> That's not a good strategy to solve right. that problem, and so you know. So I think it's and, and in fact it kind of it, it goes against it goes against solving that problem. It gets in your way of, of creating that kind of culture because I think what we want is is we want a culture of of psychological safety. You want a culture of trust and you want a culture of respect. And so if if you aren't trusting the people around you to not make false complaints against you, which by the way it doesn't happen very often, right? Um, but it's you know it is like. That that's not that's also not a cult. that's not the culture that we're looking for. And so I think it's you know to un, to really to be able to get to understand how incidents of sexual harassment take place, how they unfold inside inside of organizations, and to understand that it's it's more than just about a, a a single bad actor or a couple of bad actors. It's really about how we all are complicit in creating a culture that allows those bad actors to continually get away with bad behavior. And, and I think that's the tragedy, like you just said there, like like false complaints happen at such a, a minuscule low rate, but they seem to get all of the attention when it, when it comes to this topic. Like everybody always thinks that, hey, you know, this is a false accusation. How would this person ever do something like that? And, and it just does a complete disservice to the, the whole process, right? It's, yeah, I mean, the, I have uh, tripped up over the issue of false accusation, I think. And originally, when I first started doing this work, I'll just kind of share a little a little story background with you, is that when I initially started doing this work about probably seven or eight years ago, I was talking to my brother about it. We were having this very same conversation of just the the, the idea of false, false accusation. And why is this such, like, why is this such a hot button thing? And like, this is a reaction that you get when you start to talk about sexual harassment prevention. All of a sudden, the conversation turns to this this fear of false accusation. And so I kind of thought it was this, I, yeah, I had some ideas about it. I, I, I wanted to have more conversations about it. And so I actually created a graphic, which I shared on Tumblr, which I had never used before. And the graphic went viral overnight. And, and so if you've ever had something go viral, what happens is, is that like everyone is making all of these comments and they were all using this idea of false accusation, whether it was valid or not valid, what it was like to be falsely accused, whether, whether it was about people people getting away with things that they had done but had not been held accountable for. Um, But it actually gave me this opportunity to dig a little bit more into that fear because I think what you're saying is that the fact of false accusation is, you know, the percentages are low. The fear is high, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's understanding that that fear is high and the fear is real and digging into a little bit of like where that fear comes from. And so I used to think that a lot of that fear came from, from, mostly men, right? Kind of being, uh, being more on the defensive side of like, well, I, like I would never do that to somebody. And so therefore like the worst possible thing that I could think about would be somebody accusing me of it. And what I learned is, is like when you started to dig into, dig into that fear, it was more of like, well, how do I know that I'm having the kinds of interactions that are healthy? How do I know what's happening? And, and also just not really understanding what the experience is for, for, you know, not just women, but for people, you know, for there's a lot of people who go to work and feel afraid to go to work and that, 
that there's and there's some people who've never really considered what that might actually be like. And so when you start to open the conversation and just not get thrown off by like, sure, you know, what? it's like somebody's going to say something that they're afraid of false accusation. I always want to dig a couple of layers deeper because what tends to happen is that underneath that fear um, is is something mean, you know, is is a place where you can start having a more meaningful conversation about this topic. Mm. I like that. I like that. So uh, before we go much further, it may be a good idea uh, to kind of define what sexual harassment is. So do you have a good definition for our listeners of how to know what that line is? Well, so I think you can certainly start with, I think the, you know, the good place to start, and if, if you are not aware of the fact that sexual harassment is against the law. So I think it's understanding what the legal definition of sexual mm-hmm. harassment is, which is unwelcome sexual advances, requests for sexual favors, and other verbal or physical conduct of a sexual nature. And when you're thinking about it through the lens of the law, the behavior is legally considered sexual harassment if it impacts directly or indirectly in a, a person's employment or interferes with their ability to perform their work, or if it creates an intimidating, hostile, or offensive work environment. And so, so the, so the, so yes, there is a definition of sexual harassment. How that definition gets interpreted by law and by policy is, is where a lot of the, is where a lot of the gray area comes in. So it's like, was this behavior unwanted? Was it clear that it was unwanted? Um, again, you know, my background is more on prevention than on, than on the law, but I, it's, you know, the, the law is, is one part of this conversation. I think the other piece of this is that, is that while there is, one law that defines sexual harassment, your workplace or organization may have other policies that guide your behavior in in the conduct of work, right? So it's like, and you don't have to agree with those policies or even think they're right or reasonable, but you do need to know what those policies are and understand how you might be held accountable for um, for living up to them or not living up to them. So, you know, a couple of examples of those kinds of policies might be our our workplace. What are the what are the policies around workplace relationships? Like, can you date somebody that you work with? If so, is it can they be in your reporting line? Usually not. But what happens if you're dating somebody and they are up for a promotion? So it's like understanding how those workplace relationship dynamics. If you're attracted to somebody that you work with, can you ask them out on a date, or would that be considered against your organizational policy? Like these are you know sort of things things we need to think about. And then another one that comes up quite often is this idea of obligated or mandated reporting. And so what that means is that is that more and more companies are asking managers, and I, this you know kind of goes back to this idea of burden of command, is is to be responsible for not just not act not sexually harassing people that they work with, but paying attention enough in the organization that they are responsible to it, to report sexual harassment that they witness or hear about from anybody inside the organization. Um, so I think you know, those are a couple of just like the legal and policy issues that um, that are important. So certainly kind of starting with the rules is incredibly important. But, you know, from the rules leads to a bunch of places where increased skills and in how we interact with each other are really going to be what makes the difference. Well, and, and I like where you went there because it segued nicely to the next question I had lined up. Uh, you talk about skills-based approach to sexual harassment prevention. What is a skills-based approach look like? Well, so let's take a let's drop you know. So let's think outside of the issue of sexual harassment. So let's mm-hmm. let's say you had a team of people, and your job was to teach them how to play soccer. 
So a rules-based or a compliance-based approach would mean that you would like bring them all into a room, uh, or maybe you would just do an online webinar and you would share with them the rules of soccer. So you'd be like, these are the rules. This is like the, you know, this is the ball. This is, you know, this is what a soccer ball looks like. You need to kick it into the net. Can't use your hands. This is like, you know, the regulation size for the playing field. Um, and, and then you would expect them, so you'd be like, great, you've watched this 45-minute video. Now what I'd like you to do is like go out and be a World Cup soccer player together. Go ahead. Great. Have a good time. You've just watched, you know, I've given you the best 45-minute webinar that I could possibly give you. Good luck. <laughs> and so so if you did that, that would be completely ridiculous, right? And right. So, so essentially, that's what we're doing. That's what most organizations are doing when it comes to sexual harassment, uh, sexual harassment training. Right. Is that that they're bringing everybody into the room. They're like, these are the rules of the game. Uh, If you violate them, we'll fire you. Go on. Good luck. I know this is a really complicated set of skills, like interacting with each other as human beings. Like this is it's actually pretty hard, as it turns out. (laughs) And so and and then they just send people on their way. And so so when you think about skills based sexual harassment, what I'm talking about is is doing a little bit more of a breakdown of what some of those skills are. So if it were soccer, you would be thinking about, okay, well, we need to think about who's got good skills with the ball, who's a fast runner, Um, are people practicing their skills individually, are they practicing them together as a team, Um, you know, you would be, you know, you'd be thinking about, you know, and not everybody would have the same skills and that would be okay. It would be a little bit more of like an individualized pathway. So some people might come and be like, you know, look, I'm a really fast runner, but I've never like run and kicked a ball at the same time. Um, you know, I remember some guy on my high school soccer team was like really great at doing these like front handspring throw-ins, right? You're like, well, that's a special skill. Like we should really be using, you know, using that, but using it appropriately. Can't do that in the middle of the field. But like, if you can, you know, if that's how you far you can throw the ball, then we want to have you do that when the time is right. And so when it comes to sexual harassment is that, you know, some of the skill, the primary skill is the skill of being able to talk about sexual harassment and sexual violence. So, so when we're talking about sexual harassment, we are doing so in a, in an environment where one in four women, one in six men and one in two transgender individuals have experienced sexual abuse or assault in other contexts. So we have to remember that, that we are talking about something that makes people uncomfortable um, for a lot of different reasons in a lot of different ways. And we're, and we're up against a, a generations of silence on this topic. So even the idea of talking about it is very uncomfortable for a lot of people. So if we can't talk about sexual harassment and violence, then we can't move on to any of the higher level skills, which would be things like helpful intervention or bystander intervention, responding to a disclosure of sexual harassment, navigating, you know, setting boundaries or respecting boundaries in relationships. Those are two separate skills that often get lumped together, but those are those are skills. But if you can't first just simply have a conversation about sexual harassment and violence without like feeling like you want to crawl into a hole and die, then um, it's going to be very hard to do any kind of prevention work. Yeah. Oh, man, I love it. And, and you talk about one of the skills uh, that you talk about in the book uh, is is using a framework uh, to have the conversations and and the thing that I like about it in here is that you you don't really just kind of lay it out cookie cutter style you give a lot of wiggle room because as you mentioned interacting with humans is is hard it's 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 difficult and it's complex and there is no one solution that's going to work for every conversation right 
Correct. If I, if I believe me, if there was a book that I could write that would just be like a script for your life on this topic, I would have written that book instead. <laughs> but, like, but what we want, but what we want is we want more people, not just quote experts like me, to have more comfort and skill and ability to engage in, and you know, not just engage in these conversations, but to start them and lead them inside of organizations. If we want to, if we want to change the way that culture looks like. So uh, again, I love that. Yeah. So, so, with the, yeah, so with the, you want to talk about we want to talk about the framework a little bit and why it's yes, important to have one. Yeah. So I think you know. So I think with the framework, right? So the the reason why it's important to have a framework is that if you don't have a framework, you're going to use some other framework that is readily available to you. And when it comes to this topic, the ones that I found that are available to people and not effective are frameworks like right and wrong. Um, good and bad, and male and female. So those are three frameworks that we tend to use when we're having conversations about sexual harassment that are not as effective as more of like an uncomfortable conversation framework. And so I think, you know, what I will say around uh, around the topic of like when I'm talking about uncomfortable conversation, when I'm talking about conversations on this topic, I am not talking about conversations where you personally are being sexually harassed that's like a sort of totally different type of thing. Um, and however you respond is, you know, however you respond at the moment is absolutely fine. What I'm talking about are the kinds of conversations that, that are more around prevention and response um, as from an organizational perspective. So, you know, so when we're thinking about what a framework looks like, it's, it's really one is like, you have to know what you're talking about. So we started a little bit of our conversation today with some of the facts about um, about sexual harassment, sexual abuse, and sexual assault. So you kind of need to know, like, you know, sort of understand the lay of the land before you step into the conversation. And sometimes just, you know, recognizing that you might be learning a new fact in a conversation or needing to, or somebody might be lacking a fact of the uh, piece of the context is like, it's important. And maybe the purpose of the conversation is to adjust, is to teach them that. Maybe it's not. Maybe the fact doesn't actually matter. So kind of understanding facts and the role that they're playing. Um, the second is this idea that you had talked about is like, get, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, the, you're going to feel uncomfortable having, like, having conversations about sexual harassment and violence. I feel uncomfortable talking to you today about this topic and doesn't mean I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do it anyway. But that feeling of like, oh, am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? Like, you know, what it, the thoughts you have in your head, the feelings you have in your body, like just know what they are, witness them. But like, they're, it's not a sign you shouldn't be having the conversation. Um, the third piece of this framework is, is the idea of pausing a reaction. So, so when we're having conversations about, about uncomfortable things, it's going to bring feelings up in ourselves and in the person that we're talking to. So if you have any capacity to pause your own reaction or to help other people pause their reaction so that you could think about what's the purpose of this conversation? How does it contribute to the organizational culture? Um, I know I'm going to have more conversations with this person or on this topic or, you know, it's like, so but like, what's really the goal? If you can, if you are able to get those little moments of pause, it's just going to allow you to respond in a more intentional way. Um, and then the last two pieces are this idea of like embracing practical questions. I get so many practical questions on this topic that I think topic that I think are just incredibly important. It's like, well, like I, what we started with is like, well, should I just not be in a room with somebody of the opposite gender anymore? Um, sometimes people get mad at those questions. And I think we just need to embrace them and and understand why people are asking them. And then finally, is this idea of just seeing the whole picture is that, you know, with you know, whoever you are, you you have a set of experience talking about sexual harassment and violence, and you have a, a set of experiences, perhaps witnessing it or having a per, being personally impacted by it, either either as a victim or 
survivor, the loved one of a victim or survivor, and that all of those experiences lead us to, you know, kind of view things in the way that we view them. And and you you may not know what that what the history or background is of the person that you're talking to. And so really just being able to understand and see the whole picture of of survivors, seeing the whole picture of prevention versus responding to incidents. Um, you know, I think all of those things are important. So that's kind of the basics of the framework. Yeah, no, and I like that you mentioned experiences and, and the whole picture because, you know, in, in my in my experiences dealing with this, I think the one piece that a lot of uh, a lot of well intentioned uh, managers, leaders, HR personnel, whoever it is, having a conversation, one of the pieces that I think they forget is that they are part of the picture too, and their experiences, and it's 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 a little bit more difficult. Not impossible, but a little bit more difficult if if they have been a victim themselves mm-hmm. to to have that conversation, right? Yep, and I would say especially in the workplace, right, where there's a lot of reasons why you might want not want to bring that history or experience into your professional identity in a workplace context, right? And so I think I'm personally am a survivor of sexual abuse, and and a lot of times what I will do in a training environment is bring that experience into the room because I know that there are people in the room who've had that experience, but they they may they may not feel comfortable sharing it, nor should they have to, and so. Um, but I think it's to remember that you're always having these conversations with and among people who have experienced sexual abuse or assault personally. And and I would say, you know, I always put a special asterisk on that around and and men as well. And so, you know, one in six men here in the U.S. have experienced personally experienced sexual abuse or assault. And I think that that is I would prefer to err on the side of of digging one more layer when I'm hearing a question from a man who may be a survivor than to sort of to write somebody off as someone who doesn't understand this issue at all. Mm. And so you said uh, one in one in six men and then uh, earlier one, one in four women, one in four women. And then you had one. Was it for transgender? Yeah. One, one in two. Wow. That's man. That, I mean, that that like I, I knew the statistics for some of those. I, I hadn't heard the transgender and that's. Uh, you know, I'm from Tennessee, so I'll break down the math for some of my Tennessee listeners that might be listening. You know, that's that's half the people, that's half transgenders have experienced this, and that, that's kind of yeah. mind-boggling, especially when you tie that back to the piece you mentioned earlier with how underreported this is, mm-hmm. and we're already at half, and you know that the underreported rate is fairly substantial. That that brings it up to you know I'm just throwing numbers out there you know more in the the three quarters to maybe eighty percent of transgenders probably really experience this. Well, yeah, I mean, so I think the the numbers around the experience and the incidents are are kind of measured differently than the sexual kind of sexual harassment and the reporting within a workplace context. So I think it's is those numbers are collected through more public health uh, measures versus uh, justice measures. So I mean, so. We can get into a whole different conversation about the about the data, but I think it's it's um, you don't. I wouldn't necessarily combine those two statistics. Okay, gotcha. I I, I I'll put it this but way. But yes, even even just one out of like one, I would say you know one out of a hundred is too many. But like you know it's, it's like they're mind boggling statistics. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say. We'll just put it this way: it happens way too daggone often, way, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> So, um, 
So the, another thing you mentioned in your book, and I'm just kind of uh, working yeah. through this here, and I strongly encourage everybody listening uh, to, to get a copy of this book. It is is a great book. Uh, I don't care what level of an occupation you're in. Uh, this has some great skills for you uh, to help deal with, with this topic. And uh, we hope nobody is experiencing this, but we know statistics you likely are. The power of practice. How does somebody practice this type of conversation? Well, so there's a... So, so if you've taken one of those rules-based uh, webinars or trainings, right? So the, the purpose of the practice would be like, you know, Joe walks in and touches his colleague on the butt. Is that sexual harassment? <laughs> and, and yes or no. And they'll be like, yes, it is. And then they'll be like, great, you passed. And so, um, and so that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, and I'm not talking about like practicing not sexually harassing people, but it would be more like, you know, Joe, you know, uh, Joe and Maddie are in a meeting with their team and, you know, Maddie stands up to, you know, make a presentation and Joe comments about like, oh, is that the outfit you were wearing when you closed that big deal? And then Maddie just sort of laughs it off and like sits back down and looks down. Like, so if, you know, so you're, let's say you're another manager in the meeting. What do you do? How do you respond? What do you say? Um, so, so those are the kinds of practices. So it's, it's one, it's like working kind of some realistic scenarios. So that the one that, that one that I just gave you is actually a scenario around bystander intervention. So it's like, so if you witness something that is troubling or inappropriate, how do you respond? And that that's actually a pretty easy tactical skill that you can learn. Um, and it's not always direct, it's not always confronting the person who made the, the comment. There's some other ways that you can intervene that are, are just as effective to restoring safety and respect to the culture, to the room, to the team. Um, you know, another one I like to practice is, you know, would be to do a, a scenario around um, kind of unclear communication or unclear boundaries. So it's it's like somebody asks you out for drinks. You think they're asking, you know, like two, co- you know, two colleagues are asking each other out for drinks. One of them does keep saying no, but the other person keeps asking unclear whether it's a date and then you're the manager and you've got to like sort this whole thing out turns out it was like a group thing and now but everyone's uncomfortable working with each other now one person you know one person think they were being stalked and the other one was like I was just trying to be nice and invite them so how do you like how do you sort kind of sort that out what conversations not just do you have in response to that but what would be some skills that your team members would need to prevent that kind of thing from happening in the future Um, a third type of practice would be around if somebody tells you that they were sexually harassed so if you're a manager, there are there are oftentimes uh, com- compliance and legal r- responses that you have to do. So like you might have to report it up through human resources. Um, understanding what those are and understanding how to have a disclosure conversation in a way that's both compliant and empathetic is something that takes quite a bit of practice. And a lot of managers really want to know how to do that. But another form of disclosure would be like, what if your colleague at work tells you that they were sexually assaulted in college and just sort of like casually mentions it one day? or you see it on social media, like how do you follow up with them and have a conversation? So, um, you know, so when we're thinking about the many, you know, it's not just one or two con- like critical conversations that we need to have about this topic. It's really just, it's really like a habit of conversation of just making sure that we're letting people know that we're willing to have these conversations, that we're not afraid of them. Um, and how do we find constructive and healthy ways to start the conversations before incidents happen rather than waiting for them to happen and then like having a bunch of really messy conversations afterwards. Mm. 
Well, and, and I like you mentioned bystanders there because, uh, you know, there's there's usually at least three people in each one of these instances. There's the, the perpetrator, the target, and a bystander, right? Oftentimes many bystanders, but yes. True, right. So, and I think that's the... That that is probably one of the more awkward positions to be in, if uh, depending on the situation. Is if you're the bystander and you kind of just touched on it, is you know, is this what I saw? Do I say something? And so, should people err on the side of caution and 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 go ahead and say something, or is there a process that a bystander should work through to decide what action they should take? So I think a lot of people misunderstand the concept of bystander intervention. And so I think it's important to start there. So it's like, so there's two pieces that are important to understand is that one is there is a spectrum of behavior that ranges from completely consensual and healthy to violent and dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. And so so the, the earlier on the spectrum that you intervene, the less likely that individual's behavior or the tolerance for behavior is going to go to the dangerous and violent side of the spectrum. So I think that's like number one, is that, that the, the principle here is intervene early so you don't have to wait to see if it's going to get bad. <laughs> um, so, so that's number one. And two is that the intervention isn't on the person, it's on the culture. So, mm-hmm. so you are intervening... Like, the purpose of a healthy intervention is to restore safety to the culture. And that is actually a really important concept because I think, you know, it's like, so walking up to somebody who, you know, like put their hand on somebody's shoulder and like punching them in the nose, like that doesn't actually restore safety to the situation, right? Like <laughs> right. you might say like, well, I stopped them from doing the thing that they were doing. Um, but it's, you know, so that, you know, that's an extreme example. But I think the idea is that it's, is that intervention, it's a team sport. It happens early and often and that the intervention is on the culture rather than on a particular person. And so I think when you kind of understand those big picture pieces, it makes some of your choices a little bit easier to, um, to navigate. Okay. So, um, you know, another piece that I've, I've ran into working with, uh, working with managers and especially, uh, people in, in positions of power is there, there seems to be a severe, uh, underestimation of what that positional power brings to a conversation and, and how sometimes, and, and you kind of mentioned, you know, the spectrum, uh, how sometimes what they're doing is being viewed. Uh, well, I guess I say how what they're doing is being viewed uh, and interpreted based on that power. You know, quid pro quo, for instance, is one that comes up uh, quite a bit, and and sometimes that is something that is being lorded over someone. If you do this for me, I'll do that for you. But as you mentioned, sometimes that is kind of a misinterpretation uh, of the situation. So how, and I think this maybe ties in a little bit to some of the things we've said before, how does a, a leader, someone with positional power, how do they have that conversation and avoid uh, that power getting misinterpreted? Is the question making sense? I kind of rambled a little bit on it. Yeah, well, I mean, so it sounds like yeah, what I'm hearing you ask is is just kind of how do we how do we recognize and use the power that we have in healthy ways? And so yes. I, mean, I think you are getting at the core of this, right? Because it's, it's, you know, sexual harassment is an unhealthy expression of power. And I think it's, and I think the other important thing to recognize is that, you know, is that power 
can manifest itself through positional power, right? So you're kind of talking about a leader within an organization. But, right. you know, there's other kinds of power that are at play in, an, in you know, like in the workplace. And so it's like you don't have to be the CEO in order to have power over a set of people or a set of relationships that you can then either use in a healthy way or an unhealthy way. So if you're thinking about if you're in a position that controls benefits or resources or perks, right? Like that's, you know, that's right. somebody, if you're the person, if you are physically bigger or stronger, um, uh, you know, or free of physical or mental disability. So it's if you speak the dominant language of the organization uh, and others and somebody else doesn't. So it's like just there's like a bunch of different ways that like power again, power. I think it's important to remember because it's like power in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's mm-hmm. just when power is used in unhealthy ways. So so being able, you know, certainly one of the skills that I talk about and one of the skills that you can get to by having more uncomfortable conversations is really understanding understanding and recognizing the power that you have and how that power comes off to other people. And that can be really uncomfortable, right? And so, you know, so I think it's, you know, when I, I think about, you know, the, the places where, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm a white woman. And, um, and so there's, you know, like, I can go, I can go up to anybody in any kind of public situation and ask them for the time and they tell me what time it is. Like, that's like, that's what happens, right? Mm-hmm. And then I recognize that that's like, that's that is you know having some kind of sense of power and privilege like in the, in in those kinds of interactions it's you know there are you know friends that i have who are african american men might go you know they can't walk up to anybody and ask them for what time it is without that person running away scared from them right and so it's you know so again it's like if we don't take the time to un, you know to have conversations and to kind of question you know question ourselves um and how we come off to other people and that just because I'm coming off that way doesn't make me a bad person. It doesn't mean that I was necessarily doing anything wrong, but it's like, but you do have a responsibility when you have power is to understand how that power is being seen and interpreted. So it's like, so, you know, I know in conversations, it's like, I'm not just me, Sarah, having this conversation, but it's like, I might be like every other white woman you've ever had a conversation with about this topic. And like, <laughs> that's fine. Like, you know, it's, it's a, you're going to, you're going to project all of that onto me and that's okay. And so, well like let's try to work through that together and I'll t- like I'll take my responsibility for that so um so I think it's I don't know I, I don't know if that fully answered I was also a little rambly so it's it's a big topic we could probably talk about it for several days would be my guess yeah no you 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 hit it uh you hit what I was getting at a hundred percent and and you're right it is huge and you know I'm glad you brought up that uh uh, you know, we, we talk, uh, one of the things I talk about is everybody's talking about emotional intelligence, but nobody talks about emotional ignorance. Mm-hmm. And, and there's just as much value in understanding where that lack of knowledge lies, because a lot of people don't understand when you get people that push back on the privilege piece is they don't understand exactly what you just said. You know, privilege doesn't necessarily mean that you have more, you come from more. It means you have more opportunities that other people don't have for and, reasons right. beyond your control. Right. Absolutely. And I think it's and the other thing that I always talk about is that it's like empathy. Empathy needs to be practiced in all directions. And so um, I think oftentimes it's easier. As, sometimes it's easier to have empathy for people who have less than you. 
But it's also important to think about like, you know, it's because it's not hard, right? It's like, it is hard to see your own power and privilege and to come to terms with that and to like realize that like, oh, I was like, here I was like, thinking that I was just like some regular person. And then now suddenly I'm like a, a white man who has all this power that I didn't even know I had. I never felt that way. And so right. it's, you know, and now everyone seems mad. And so, I mean, I think it's like, those are real conversations and that, that like the feeling, you know, it's like, it's not a competition to, you know, of like who has, of who is doing this work the best. We're all, we all need to do more of it and to do it in more and better ways. And so, um, and that's how things are going to change. Exactly. I couldn't have said it better myself. So, um, so kind of moving a little bit further through the book here. Um, so at this point, I'm going to assume that everybody has got the book. Uh, they, they've read through it. They, they've, they've taken the, the time to build their framework, have these un- uh, get comfortable having these uncomfortable conversations. But they still uh, have a report of sexual harassment that lands on their desk. How, how can leaders, how should leaders respond to that? And what are some tips that you have for them in, in that kind of aftermath? So if so, if somebody comes to you and reports that they have been sexually harassed. Correct. So I, you know, so I think it's one is hopefully you've done the pre-work that needs to happen, right? So it's, you know, one is, you know, so hopefully you and the person who is coming to you understands what the reporting process is. It's not like an HR black box. You've kind of, you know, you know, the next steps that are going to need to happen. Uh, and then, you know, I think, you know, sort of you as a, you know, if that has happened and you as a manager should feel good that somebody trusted you enough to come and share this information with you. And so I think being able to say, thank you for trusting me with this information and for sharing this with me is a really great first response. So I think responding in a way that, that, um, you know, validates that it is hard for that person, you know, that, that this was a difficult conversation. Uh, you know, I think assessing the person's safety. And so whether that is physical safety, psychological safety, recognizing that you as their manager are probably not their counselor or their best friend or the person who's going to like be holding their hands through this experience. And so really being able to like acknowledge and honor, honor that it is important for that person to have, have safety and safety and support. Uh, and, and remembering that it's like there's no kind of appropriate or right way to respond. So I think it's it's expressing, you know, it's believing the person um, who's telling, you know, believing the person uh, face value, expressing empathy, uh, you know, expressing empathy, empowering the person to make the decision about what happens next. So let's say you do have to go report it. You do need to share the information with human resources. You know, do you want, you know, can can the person who's reported it do that? Or you want to do it by phone? Do you want to do it by email? Do you want to walk over to this person's office right now? Do you want to do it at 4 p.m. after you go for a walk and like get a cup of coffee? Um, you know, to the extent that you can still give people choices in in a confined, you know, sort of uh, environment that and those choices are really meaningful. So and then I think it's the you know the final thing is like the more that you know about sexual harassment, how it plays out, what the process is inside your organization. It's going to just make make those conversations. They'll always be difficult. They're difficult for the person who's disclosing and, and they're difficult for the manager who's receiving that information. And so you have to just acknowledge that and accept it. Um, but I think, you know, you can, you can work through them when you've practiced, you know, it's like when you understand what the process is and you, and you've practiced those conversations ahead of time. Mm, I like that. And, you know, for the reporting piece, uh, I think one of the things that, that, that I like, uh, that's, that's really taken hold in the last uh, few years 
there's a lot more technologically based options. Uh, are you familiar with uh, Callisto? Yes, love Callisto. Oh, I, I think that is is amazing. And uh, you know, one of the things that, that I like about it, uh, from my perspective, and, and maybe you have some different things to share, but. Uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, I'll actually throw a link to them, not affiliated with them whatsoever. I just uh, really like what they're doing. Is it, it gives uh, victims a, a they can report electronically, anonymously, until there's a second uh, report against yes. the same person. And then, so, so it seems like just that psychological impact of knowing. I'm going to be anonymous unless I have somebody who corroborates, who's experienced and shared this with me, and then we can go with this together. Uh, that seems to be a huge piece with, with technology like that, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, and Calista's worked really well on college campuses and sort of other environments where there's like a contained set of people and like serial, you know, it's like sort of with, with serial perpetrators kind of getting away with multiple, multiple incidents. And that's like, it's been really helpful. And I know it's been used in the military as well. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, there are, uh, I think uh, only a handful of companies that are, are using something like that currently, which kind of does an independent, it also does like an independent time and date stamp so that you can, you know, have a, a formal record of, of, uh, the incident taking place. But I, you know, I think it's like that kind of, um, you know, that kind of reporting system and that, and the online piece of that too is developed with the support of a whole bunch of survivors of sexual assault. So it's really, in, it's designed in a way that encourages people to seek the support that they need. It includes as resources that they can go out to. And so um, I think thinking about how that type of, of platform could be more universally adopted in, um, in the private sector is, you know, would be incredible. And, you know, there's also places in the private sector where third party harassment is an issue. And so the you know, sort of the, the idea of if you're if you're in an organization that has 10,000 employees, there's a, you know, it's easier to hold a manager accountable who's committing acts of sexual harassment within the company. But if you're talking about a vendor or a client or a customer, um, you know, or you think about venture capitalists, like investors and in companies as, you know, board members in the nonprofit sector, it might be donors or prospects, um, you know, that, that, you know, that kind of system could be potentially um, incredibly useful to identify people who are committing acts across different organizations. Yeah. And, and um, in my first season, I, I spoke with uh, Chief Jill Lees of the Indiana University uh, Police Department, and she was talking about it's not Callisto, but it's another one that that's uh, Campus Shield or something. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, the technology there and, and you kind of mentioned it. It's sad that there is a, a, a term kind of repeat and habitual offenders because, you know, they, they get kind of good at getting away with this thing, too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, is it, and they get away with it because, because, you know, not just, they rely on not just the silence of victims, but the silence of witnesses, bystanders, and other people who might suspect their behavior, but not uh, feel empowered to speak up about it. Well, and speaking of, of people being empowered to speak up about it, how has the landscape changed in the last few years with the Me Too movement? I, mean, I think it's, you know, I think in, in a lot of ways, it has empowered more people to come forward. I know that the EEOC has seen more complaints that have come forward. Um, 
and I think it was like a you know double digit incre- percentage increase of of reports. So I think there certainly are um, you know kind of more people coming forward. But if you look at some other recent cases, uh, you know you think about there's recently kind of a, the whole news article about Victoria's Secret and some you know alleged retaliation against multiple people who stepped forward. Um, you know it's like retaliation is a fe- you know is is still a fear. So I mean I think we have we haven't solved this problem yet. Uh, there's, there's still work to do. Sexual harassment is still happening. And, um, and it's not, you know, I think it, it, you know, people aren't reporting, they don't necessarily trust the system. And so I think there's some repair that needs to happen um, around organizations and their ability to protect workers and to really demonstrate their commitment to safe and respectful workplaces if we're going to move forward from this. Mm. No, and and uh, I agree with you 100%. It's, it's, uh, you know, it, it always sounds a little self-serving being in a leadership development space, but I, I always tell people I'm a firm believer that there's no problem that we're facing on the planet that doesn't come down to the topic of leadership. And as, as you just kind of uh, hit on, if leaders are doing their jobs, taking these things seriously and, and making it known that this is not the culture, this is not going to be tolerated, and they take action when these things happen, they'll go a long way to... Uh, I mean, people just have no place to thrive if that's the way they want to act, right? Yeah, yeah. So. I think that's right. Well, Sarah, I, I really appreciate uh, you being a guest on the on the show today. I, uh, you know, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I, I, as as difficult as a topic as it is to to really talk about, it needs to be talked about. And, and as you mentioned, you were a little uncomfortable. Uh, you know, I had a little uncomfortability myself here because of the topic, but it it needs to be discussed. So thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And see, look, we're both still standing after <laughs> after a conversation about sexual harassment. It is possible. <laughs> there you go. Well, uh, you know, a question I like to ask before I let a, a, a guest go is, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you would like to, to talk about? No, I think we cover, we covered pretty much everything. Fantastic. Yeah, I hope people will, will have more uncomfortable conversations in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. So for the listeners who may be interested in finding out more about you or maybe even reaching out to you with, with some questions, how would they be able to do that? They can go to my website, which is sarahbullieu.me, M-E. So it's in my last name is B-E-A-U-L-I-E-U, and it's Sarah with an H. And I am findable on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook uh, under the same name. Okay. And I'll uh, I'll make sure I get a, a copy of those links put in the show notes. So if you're wanting to connect with Sarah, you can, you can get in there and do that. Uh, and again... I strongly encourage, I'm not, you know, getting any kickbacks from, from Sarah on this, but I strongly encourage uh, Breaking the Silence Habit, a practical guide to uncomfortable conversations in the Me Too workplace. Uh, if you are, I'm just going to put it this way, if you are breathing, you need to have this book. Uh, so, again, one last time, thank you for joining us today, Sarah. really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And listeners, thank you for being with us. Uh, If you have any questions, comments, or concerns for me, you can reach out to me at burden.command at gmail.com. Be sure that you're subscribing, rating, and reviewing uh, the show so we can get elevated on the uh, platforms that we're on. Uh, Thank you for your time, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wanna Bet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. 
but I like airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.